It's been uh, said this Sunday that we have a lot of new people, and uh, a lot of our uh, Grace Churchers, our Grace Church family, have said, man, I, I don't know a lot of these people. There's a very simple solution to that. You just walk up, you extend your hand like so, you tell them your name, and you shake it if they uh, put their hand out. So uh, be sure to get to know some people that are here and introduce yourself um, and just welcome them uh, to church this morning. Um, if you are new to Grace Church, we go through books of the Bible, which means that we do not shy away from hard text. Um, I don't pick which text I'm going to preach on what particular Sunday. Uh, we as the Elder Council pray about what, we, what book or letter God wants us to uh, go through, and then we just go through it verse by verse. Um, and sometimes it's awkward because there are some things in the Bible, I don't know if you've read it all the way through, that are just flat out awkward, right? That are hard to deal with. Today we get one of those texts. So congratulations if this is your first Sunday. <laughs> we, um, as we're going through Romans, one of the things we've seen is in the last two chapters, Paul has launched a stunning indictment against humanity's ungodliness, humanity's sin. He systematically shows that all people Jews and Gentiles alike stand under the just wrath of God. If you weren't here for the last two weeks, the message has been simple. No one is exempt, no matter how moral or how religious they are. Now, Paul has a twofold goal in this indictment. First, he wants to extinguish any hopes that you might have to provide your own righteousness. You simply cannot match up to God's right standard. He wants to completely extinguish any hope in self. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to communicate a very clear message that God is always right in his judgment. So if we could paraphrase it, you're always wrong. God's always right. That's Romans 1 and 2. And Romans 3, by chance. If we are judged, God is perfectly just and right in doing so. And it's the fact of God's rightness. The fact that he always does what's right. That's the focus of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And so in this passage, Paul is going to work through very complex counter-arguments to show that sinful humanity truly has no excuse before God, which means if you, have, you are a sinner, you, me, we have no excuse before God. Now, Paul must successfully beat this into us in a sense. You would think, why do you need three chapters to tell us that there is no hope in and of ourselves? Well, because we constantly look for hope in and of ourselves. He has to get it into our heads that there is no hope in our righteousness. We are sinful, even with all of our morals, even with all of our religion, even with all, all of our spiritual devotion, everything falls flat before him. We must have righteousness from somewhere, someone else. Now, it's worth noting that Paul's argument in Romans 3, 1 through 8, is specifically focused on Jewish concerns. There's the awkward side of the text, because to my knowledge, I don't know anyone that's here that's Jewish. They might be, or might have a background of Jewish, Jewishness. If you're in a Christian church, the likelihood is you're probably not religiously Jewish at any rate. So Paul has got this passage 
that is devoted specifically to Jewish concerns. He's anticipating potential objections to everything that he's claimed so far, namely that religious Jews stand under the wrath of God just like pagan Gentiles do. Jews, Gentiles, judge the same. And he'll be asking these antithetical questions such as, okay, well, if that's true, is there any advantage in being a Jew? If Jews and Gentiles alike are judged, then what's the point of being a Jew? Is God unfaithful? Because didn't he make promises to the Jews? And if God can sovereignly turn our evil actions to accomplish his good and glorious ends, then why should we ever be punished for sin? We're going to look at each one of these in due course and consider how each one adds to Paul's gospel-centered message. But for the moment, knowing that most of us are not Jews, I want to highlight the point within the point. The reason this text exists is because the Jewish people were trying to self-justify, trying to get out of the indictment that they are deserving of sin. My friends, we may not be Jewish, but we do the same thing. This is a human problem. We may not, as we read this text, we might say, I would have never asked these questions because I'm not a Jew. I would have never thought to ask these specific questions. Nevertheless, it's just a shared common tendency among all humanity that sinful people tend to seek justification for the wrong that we have done. Instead of seeking justification that comes through the confession of sin by admitting that it's wrong and faith in Jesus. In other words, we spend most of our lives trying to make our wrong look more right instead of admitting how wrong our wrong actually is. We come up with nuances and questions, and it's in these perceived nuances for my particular sin that somehow my sin is cleaner or more justified. Yes, their sin is bad, but all these little details about my sin, all the nuances, all the internal justifications means that my sin won't be judged like theirs. Paul's going to blow that out of the water in Romans 3, 1 through 8. So he's speaking to the Jews, but he's also speaking to you. And his goal is to silence any notion that your self-justification that happens in here about your sin will exempt you from judgment, because it won't. Whenever a person feels cornered or attacked, it's only natural that we would seek some sort of self-defense or self-justification. When I forget to bring home the 2% milk that my wife asked me to get, and I stand at the door with the question meeting me, did you bring home the milk? Well, <laughs> you know how busy I am? <laughs> Immediate self-justification. Rather than saying, oh, I forgot. I'm so sorry I didn't write it down. No, immediate self-justification. Oh, honey, it's been brutal. I can't believe you even asked me to bring home milk. <laughs> like, we jump to this self-justification just to justify the wrong. Rather than admitting wrong and rather than seeking repentance and faith, we just try to make our wrong seem a little more right. Our sin's not all that sinful. It's sinful, sure. We'll grant that. It's more of a mistake or a character flaw, but certainly not rebellion. Certainly not evil. Evil does not describe my sin. Just a few character defects. 
As a pastor, I've had my fair share of awkward meetings in which as an objective person, having to stand back and listen to different things that have happened in people's families, I've had to have these awkward meetings where I help people recognize their own sin rather than pointing out the sin in their family members. When caught in an emotional or physical affair, a man sometimes, I've heard men sometimes try to justify their infidelity by claiming that their wife has grown increasingly cold and emotionally detached over the years. So, yeah, it was wrong, but there was a reason for it. There was justification. I have uh, heard when encouraging people to be careful about their angry outbursts, yeah, I get angry, but what they do is much worse. I have justification for how angry I get. Again, we're not admitting that we're wrong. We're just saying that our wrong is not as wrong as everybody else says it is. You see, my friends, we are masters at making our guilt seem less guilty. We are masters at making our sin seem less sinful. In other words, we tend to reject any notion that God could ever rightfully judge us. You know, I I just know my own tendency when I approach Romans 1, 2, and 3, thinking, oh yeah, this is for all those sinners. Without ever thinking that this gavel could rightly fall on my head because I'm a sinner. You see, we sometimes get into this self-justified mindset that says, if God judges me, if, if there's ever a reality that God would judge me, then is he truly a faithful, good, and just God? Like if, if I am truly judged for my unfaithfulness, then the problem isn't my unfaithfulness, it's God's. God has somehow been unfaithful. He hasn't done what's right. Now this may seem blasphemous, it may seem wrong, it may seem to be character defamation against God. That's exactly what it is. And yet it's the same tendency that we tend to fall into, that there is no universe, real or pretend, that God would ever judge moi. God, God knows my sins, right? And he knows all the reasons and the justifications. Yeah, sure, maybe there's a, a bit of an uh, arrogance, but he doesn't realize all the stupid people I have to deal with. <laughs> or maybe he does realize it. So he's, he's not going to judge my arrogance because all these other people are just incompetent. Or God's not going to judge my anger because he saw what they did to bring that out of me. I hate to say it, but the Bible says there is a world in which God judges sin, and there is a world in which God could, would, and will judge your sin without justification. We just got to sit in that, because Paul's constantly pointing the magnifying glass back to your heart. We like to telescope it to see somebody else's sins far away, and yet Paul's saying, no, let's take the magnifying glass to your heart. You are the one that's trying to justify your sin. And self-justification will get you nowhere. So we may have different concerns in this text, but the fact that Paul has to answer these kinds of counter-arguments proves a point about humanity in general. We seek for counter-arguments and nuances that somehow give us exemption from God's judgment. So you may not be a Jew, and you may not have any idea of the historical background behind these questions, but... If you're honest in your self-righteous state, 
you can convince yourself that a just and faithful God would never judge you. That's why this text is so important. No one is too special to be exempt from God's justice. Not even God's own covenant people, Israel. No one is too special. And the fact of the matter is, is if all the world were were to go to hell because of their sin, guess what? God is no less perfectly just and good and right. He's absolutely faithful. He's absolutely righteous. And so as we delve into these explicitly Jewish counterpoints to Paul's gospel logic, I think we should do so looking at the ways that we tend to find our own exemption and how we try to change, just modify God's just standards just a little bit so that we for sure can meet the standard, even if nobody else does. I think Paul's going to show that despite whatever resistance or counterpoints you might offer, God is always right in what he does. In other words, if God were to somehow step onto the scales of justice, the only verdict is that he is true, right, perfect, absolutely good. If you step on the scales, what will it show? You are sinful, wicked, condemned. Just just listen to the words that he contrasts God and people. When he talks about God, he uses words like, Faithful, true, justified in his words, and righteous. And then he talks about you and me, and he uses words like unfaithful, faithless, liars, unrighteous, evil, sinful. So there's the contrast. What is God like? True, good, right, faithful, perfect. What's you? Unfaithful, sinful, liars. We just don't match up to God. Put us to the test. God comes out perfect we come out unrighteous. Every single time. That's the standard. So, now that we've dealt with this tendency, now we can deal with the Jewish arguments that are being offered in this text. You guys tracking with me so far? If you're new to our church, this is not of the head, we'll get it going. I'm not going to come track you down. Question number one, what advantage has the Jew? In Romans chapter one and two, Paul makes the shocking conclusion that pagan Gentiles and religious Jews both stand under the just condemnation of God. Gentiles who sin will be, will perish without the law and Jews who sin will be punished and judged under the law. In Romans three, Paul shows that God's promises to the Jews and the gospel of Jesus Christ are not at odds to each other, right? So everything you read in the old Testament, it is fully consistent with the gospel of Jesus. There is no contradiction in the gospel of God. He begins this explanation here in Romans 3, and he's going to just kind of put his toe in the water in this explanation, and he's going to come back and pick it up more fully in 9 through 11. So for those of you that feel like, I just, I'm not going to understand all this, that's fine. We've got three whole chapters to go through it later, okay? Um, so we'll just punt that ball till we get there. For now, this is just the introduction to that argument. Paul's a great writer. He's a great rhetorician. He's a great debater. Um, He's also the most confounding, frustrating guy to follow sometimes. Even Peter said, there are some things that are hard to understand in Paul. Well, we're going to do our best to come to Paul and say, Paul, tell us what you want us to know. 
In his message that both Jews and Gentiles will be judged, it leads to this counter-argument of what is the advantage of being a Jew then? Or is there any advantage to even being circumcised? This isn't an unimportant question. This is a very important question. It may not be all that important to you as a Gentile, but as a Jew who's thinking about God's work throughout all time, throughout all history, this is a fundamental, foundational question that will either bring Paul's gospel crumbling down or will verify that Paul has a gospel that's consistent with what God promised in the Old Testament. Do you see what's at stake here with this question? Here's the issue. If the gospel somehow depicts God as being unfaithful in his ancient promises to the Jews, then Paul's gospel has indirectly insinuated that God is a liar. If God just threw out his promises to the Jews and said, never mind, (laughs) let's pick back up with these Christians, then we have a serious problem. In a gospel that that declares judgment on Jews and Gentiles, it's absolutely essential for Paul to reconcile how God's special calling of Israel and the covenant that is being offered in in the new covenant, in the gospel, how those two things fit together. Paul's gospel message, if Paul's gospel message somehow contradicts any kind of Old Testament covenantal promise, then Paul has that serious problem he's got to deal with. We have an ideological inconsistency in the gospel. Now, again, remember what he said. Gentiles who obey God can be treated like circumcised Jews. Circumcised religious Jews who disobey God can be treated like Gentiles. Well, then what's the point in being Jewish at all? Commentator Thomas Schreiner argues that the word advantage here in in Greek should be understood as saving advantage. So it's not just, is there any gain? Is there any ethnic gain to being a Jew? No, it's what saving advantage. In other words, is there anything in being Jewish that can help them gain salvation from judgment? Paul's answer might surprise you. Because most of us would say, well, no. And he will say no here in a little bit. And in Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 9. But for now, he says, well, much in every way. That was a shocking answer. Well, how is there an advantage in being Jewish? He reminds his readers that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It was to them that he gave his holy commands. If we trace this all the way back to the Old Testament, the fact that God chose Israel to receive his words was no small grace. It was a big deal. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, Moses asked the people of Israel, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Let me just be clear. We're, we're in Deuteronomy 4, so we're talking about Israel, not America. Okay, so just, just track along. These are Jewish people that this is being said to. What other nation has God ever spoken to in this way? He adds later, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? To you it was shown that you might know the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Moses argues that in all the nations, in all of history, there has been no one like Israel. They have had the word of God 
from the mouth of God. They know his rules. They know his precepts. They know his will. This is, this is something that no one else has ever had in history. The word of God from the mouth of God. It's a big deal. We see the same sentiment found in Psalm chapter 147, verses 19 through 20. He says, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So God has spoken to Israel. They know his righteous stand, what his righteous standards require. Now, if you add to this the fact that what is the Old Testament scripture in the first place? Why are they there? Well, Paul says that it's in the Old Testament that we find wisdom for salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. So very simply, why is the Old Testament there? Not just to lay out God's rules, but to highlight Christ and the need for Christ. These rules are given to know God's righteous standard, to teach that we don't meet that righteous standard. We all fall short of the glory of God, as the Old Testament scriptures show us, and we need the promised Davidic king, the Messiah, the Savior, who would come like the Isaiah 53 suffering servant and die on our behalf, so that we could be made righteous. It's not just the fact that they have the law. Remember, Paul said, for it's not hearers of the law who are justified, but doers of the law. Well, there's no one that does the law. So is there any other purpose for the law, Paul? Yes, to show you your need for Jesus Christ, to show you your need for a Savior. Having the Word of God even as Israel had the Old Testament scriptures, was a great and advantageous gift that highlights God's righteousness, man's unrighteousness, and our need for a righteous substitute. So is there an advantage to being a Jew? Paul says, yes. You all have the scriptures. And it's, it's amazing. You ever go to Israel, it's the knowledge of scripture and just the intake that's there it's, it's an amazing, wonderful gift to have that kind of knowledge and receptivity of the Word of God in the Old Testament. And yet, just that in and of itself is not enough to save. It has to lead to faith in Christ, or it means nothing. So Paul's giving this yes, but. Is there an advantage to being a Jew? Yes, because you have the Scriptures. But, remember I just said, having the law, hearing the law, does nothing. So there needs to be something else. Now we get to question number two. What if some were unfaithful? Having answered the first objection, Paul moves directly to a second. What if some were unfaithful? In other words, what if some were unbelieving? So some, some Jews did not believe the gospel. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true though everyone were a liar. Now, this is going to be extremely difficult to explain. Bear with me. And again, if you don't like this sermon, come back next week. There will be a new one. <laughs> but if you're going to track the transition from the first objection to the second objection, we've dealt with, okay, is, it, is there any point in being a Jew at all then if Jews get judged like Gentiles? Well, now we get to the next question, and it needs a little bit of historical context to it, which we don't have because we're Gentiles who live in the 21st century, Paul's writing to Jews who live in the first century. So I found it helpful to kind of imagine this section as a dialogue. So imagine Paul speaking with this Jewish man who's objecting to the gospel. He starts off, okay, Paul, 
If God is going to judge religious Jews just as he will judge pagan Gentiles, then what advantage is there to being Jewish? Are you saying that being Jewish is pointless? Paul answers, no, there's great advantage. It was to the Jews that the revelation of God was given. The Jews have the word of God, and that's a massive grace. And then the Jewish objector steps back up because it's true. We do have the words of God, but God made promises to Israel in those words. There are things that he promised us. He gave us covenantal promises. Now, what happens if Israel refused to believe in your gospel and is judged like you say they will and then fails to receive those promises? You've just made God a liar, didn't you? You understand the argument now? He's basically saying that if Jews reject the gospel, get judged, and don't receive those covenantal promises, then has God been unfaithful to his promises? Here's the point. From A to B, God made a promise, and the promise isn't delivered because of unfaithfulness. So Paul's going to attack that desperately here. He's going to say, absolutely not. For Paul, it is simply unthinkable that God could ever be unfaithful that God could ever be a liar. If he judges, he is perfectly just. If he saves, he's perfectly right. Even if every Jew were proven unfaithful and no Jew received the covenant promises, God's justice and perfect faithfulness would still be true. That's an astounding remark. We're gonna hone it into us here in just a minute. He cites uh, Psalm 51.4 as evidence. He, he goes to the Old Testament scripture. He goes, great, you guys like the Old Testament scriptures? Let's use Psalm 51. In context, Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession after his adultery with Bathsheba. You guys know that story where David saw Bathsheba bathing on the Ruth. Ruth, he, he took her, Ruth, 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 there you go. Now we're fixed. Um, he sees her bathing on the roof and basically uses his, posi- his position to violate her and, and do what he wanted to. He gets her pregnant. She finds out she's pregnant, comes and tells him. So what does he do? Well, instead of confessing sin, he murders Uriah. He orchestrates this big conspiracy where Mariah, uh, Uriah ends up dead. David gets Bathsheba. Now, here's the thing. Just before all that, God had made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he would give David rest, peace, a royal son who would reign on the throne forever. Okay, so God made a promise. David sinned, and then look at what comes from that. God pours out judgment. David's son dies, the son that that Bathsheba was pregnant with. He dies, and then God says, we're not done yet. You stole another man's wife, and so there will be another man who will steal your wives, your concubines. Guess who that was? Absalom. So David deals with the ramifications of the Bathsheba narrative for generations, for, for, for years, for decades. I mean, it is ongoing, painful judgment. God did forgive his sin. He didn't kill David. He didn't wipe him out. He did show mercy, but he also showed perfect justice. As the judge, he executed his justice in a perfect way. Now, if I were David, I would be thinking, uh, hold on, God, didn't you make a promise? So you made a promise that would have rest, peace, and a royal son. 
I sinned, and now you've taken, taken away two sons, three sons, really, by the end of it. Um, I don't have rest, and now my kingdom's been tottered over by Absalom, and I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen. Aren't you being unfaithful in your judgment? Like, that's, that's what I would say. Well, God, you've made a promise. You can't judge me like this. I'm exempt. But that's not what David does. When he gets to Psalm 51, he never goes to that. He never asks God, how could you judge me because you made a promise to me? No, instead he confesses his unrighteousness. He uses words about his own sin like blood guiltiness, evil. What he did was evil, wicked. And then he petitions God saying, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then this is where Paul takes his quotation from. So that you may be justified in your words and be blameless in your judgment. So God judges David, the very David that received the covenant. Is God unfaithful for judging David? David says, no, he's absolutely right in what he's done. So by quoting Psalm 51, 4, Paul implies that if the unfaithfulness of David, the king, the ultimate Israelite, did not neglect, did not uh, negate God's justice and faithfulness, then how can the disbelief of the Jews, who also are currently in sin, for rejecting the gospel and not receiving the promises because of that, how does that render God unfaithful? If anything, they should be speaking just like David did. I've sinned, you're just. That's what Paul says. At every single point, you will never find God unfaithful. God is always right. He's always true. He's always just. Even if you're always unjust, he's always right. I think this highlights a very important, per, a very important point. God's rightness does not depend on you. My friends, there are some people sitting back presuming that on the last day, yeah, I'm currently in sin, but God promised to forgive my sin on that day. I think sometimes we sit in that presumption because we don't understand the gospel. God promised forgiveness through Christ for your sin, and he called you to repent of your sin and live in obedience and belief in Christ, right? There's no gospel there's no gospel whatsoever in the Bible, no gospel whatsoever that ever says that God will forgive your sin, just do what you want. My friends, if you are in sin and you say, you know what, I am in sin, but God must forgive me, you have just stepped on the holy toe of a sovereign judge. He must do what? He need do nothing for you. You're a sinner. You deserve judgment and wrath. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like we think that the gospel's double jeopardy, right? We committed the crime, that was forgiven, now all sins are forgiven, now we can keep doing that crime because we can't be condemned for it again. That's not justice. That's not righteousness. That's wickedness. That's sin. No, that's not the way it works. God can judge you. 
and be perfectly right in your justice. It's only when you repent of sin and believe in in Jesus that you're not judged. That's it. Just because you claim to be a Christian, you say, well, God promised Christians. That doesn't save you from judgment. Only finding refuge in Jesus does. My friends, there are a lot of people that sit back in their sins, presuming that God will just forgive them, and one day the gavel's going to fall. And no person, no person will be able to claim that God was a liar about his promises, that God hadn't delivered what he told them he would. Instead, I think there will be most of us that, that do receive that judgment because we presumed upon the kindness of God and we didn't actually put faith in Christ, didn't seek refuge in him, didn't repent of sin. That crowd and it will be exactly what uh, Nehemiah 9, 33 says. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Do you hear that? This is from the words of the returning Israelites. They had been given the Abrahamic promise. This land would be theirs forever. They'd have offspring. They would have blessing. And yet they sinned. They presumed upon the promises of God. We're the covenant people of God. We can do whatever we want and God won't judge us because we have the covenant. That was not true. They found that out the hard way. So justice has come, Jerusalem was leveled, God's people were destroyed in many ways, and yet he preserved this remnant. And it's at the end of all that, that they stand at the charred out buildings of Jerusalem because of their judgment, and they say, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have not broken or lied or done anything wrong. You have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Paul's saying the same thing here. My friends, at the end of the day, there will be no one condemned under God's justice that will say, God did wrong. God was wrong. No, he was right. He is always right in what he does. Question number three, why not do evil that good may come? Paul claims that the judgment of our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, right? He, he, he shows throughout Romans 1 and 2 That when God judges, it brings him glory. Even in pouring wrath out on our sin, God shows himself to be perfect and glorious. Now, this leads to a whole new series of counter arguments. But if our unrighteousness, how many of you are cold? Anybody cold? Okay. The crowd has spoken, Breck. I hear that cold air makes you think better. So that's why we do that. Yeah, intention (laughs) behind everything. I just see a lot of people kind of like, I'm like, I don't want you to miss this because you're trying to cover up. This leads to a whole new series of questions about if, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. To paraphrase, if, the glo- if glory comes to God in our judgment, right? If God's going to be glorified in our judgment, then is he just in judging us? Doesn't that seem kind of self-serving? right? You see, we have this, we have this understanding of that God must save to be glorified, right? Read your Bibles. The book of Exodus will show you God does not have to save to be glorified. God's glory and your salvation are not wrapped up together. 
You go to the book of Exodus, look at what he tells Pharaoh. I have raised you up. I have hardened your heart. Why? That I may get glory in all the nations. My friends, this is a hard message for Western Americans to hear. God's glory is secure in judgment or salvation. God doesn't need you for glory. Did anybody just feel like they got the air kicked out of them? Because I feel that a lot. The fact of the matter is God doesn't need you, period. God doesn't need you at all. God will be glorified. He said it. My glory will extend to all, to all the nations, to all the world as the waters cover the sea. Back at 2.14. When you read Romans 9... Paul deliberately intertwines judgment and glory and salvation and glory. And so this whole mindset of, okay, well, if God's going to get glory through judgment, then why are we being judged for sin when God gets good glory out of it? Isn't that self-serving? And it may not make sense to you why somebody would argue that, but again, this is somebody seeking self-justification for their sin. Well, hold on. If, If I'm to be judged and God's going to get good out of that, then why am I being judged? Isn't that unjust? Isn't that unfair that God would judge me and receive a benefit from it, glory out of it? Paul says, by no means. If he were unrighteous in his judgment, if he were to do what he does just for self-serving, and glory is not self-serving, it's not the same thing. If God were to somehow to be unrighteous or unjust, then how could he judge the world? He can't. An unjust judge cannot judge the world. He's going to come back to this in Romans chapter 9, chapters 9 through 11, and explain it in detail. How God's glory and Israel's rejection and God's judgment on their rejection are not at odds together, how they go together. He's going to explain it in detail. I'm kind of dreading Romans 9, to be honest, because a lot of people have a lot of opinions about it, but I've never read it. The reality is, God's glory is God's glory. And he can be glorified by saving or by judging. We presume too much when we think that God must save us to be glorified. Just not true. So then why does he save? Because he wants to. Because he desires to save you. Because he's good. You see, if God were fair, then everybody would be damned, and he would still get glory from it. Everybody would see, yes, God's perfect. He's the perfect judge. That's glory, right? When we recognize God's perfect, God's good, God's just. If we're all judged, all that stays true, he still gets glory. He could easily have what he wants, which is glory, without saving any of us. He's a self-sufficient God. And yet in his goodness, he planned and decided to save you and receive glory that way instead. You see, we cheapen grace when we think that he must save us in order to be glorified. We make God dependent on us rather than us dependent on God. 
I think it's good for us as an American church to kind of just realize he doesn't need you. He doesn't look at you and go, oh, I must save America or else I'm not going to get glory. My friends, America could pummel, be pummeled by nuclear bombs all over the place. And God would still be glorified. Be humble when you think of the gospel. Anything less is just self-justification. Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. God would never judge me because he needs me for glory. Paul says, whoa, you're going way off the reservation here. He says, anyone that that gets that far, almost like he just stops his argument. If anyone says that if it is through my lie that God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do good, evil? Why not do evil that good may come? If God's going to get glory from my sin, why not just go ahead and sin then? Why doesn't God just allow us to sin? He gets what he wants and we get what we want, right? Why not? Paul just goes, I really don't have much else to say to you. Your condemnation's just. Because it's a misunderstanding of God's character, which is good and holy. It's a misunderstanding of sin, which is a complete and total rejection of the ultimate perfect good. God is the most perfect diamond in all the universe. And you just thrown that diamond in the mud. There are consequences for that. It's called God's justice. Rejecting an ultimately good God brings ultimately bad punishment. Do you follow that logic? So Paul says, no. Okay, Jew, listen. Being Jewish is an advantage because you have the scriptures. And if you read the scriptures, you see they point you to Jesus. No, God must not keep his promise to you even if you reject him. If God judges you, he has not lied. He has not broken his covenant. And then he turns and he kind of just generalizes this whole argument. If there be anyone that think that God must save to glorify himself, condemnation's just. Like I said, it's not an easy passage, is it? Lots of loops and tie-ins and Paul's literally arguing with himself here. And it's difficult to track. So what do we do with this? We've dived into, I think this is one of the deepest, most complex components of Paul's gospel logic. Like I've I've read through Romans and I've read through it a couple times and I've not found a passage yet. It'll be easier to explain to you election than this. That means just because it's black and white in the text in Romans 9, you'll just have to deal with what Paul wrote when we get there. This is pretty hard because of the logic and the counter arguments but as mentioned before, he's, it's not just the logic and the counter-arguments that we focus on. It's what we derive from this tendency, this tendency to seek self-justification. Our tendency to lighten our own guilt, even if that means modifying or lessening the justice of God. Do you see how sinful we actually are? That we will become so self-protective in trying to persuade ourselves that we are not guilty or that we will not be judged, that we will even modify the character and nature and justice of God. 
We will, put, we will pit God against his promises. We'll pit God against himself. We will get that low to where we will divide God's justice from God's mercy. Paul says, friends, you have no excuse. You stand guilty. And he's not done yet because he goes all the way to chapter, to verse 20, which we'll deal with next week, where he takes this gavel and he hammers in the final nail in the coffin of our guilt. He has pummeled us. Now, why? Why do you? Okay, Paul, you've told us that we are bad. You've told us that we are sinful. You just swept the legs out from underneath us. I stood on one leg, moralism. You kicked that out. And then I had a, uh, another leg over here for religion and you kicked that out. And then I had a crutch in God's promises as being a Jew and you kicked that out. I literally don't have a leg to stand on now. And Paul's like, yes, you don't. That's the point. You don't have a leg to stand on. You need someone to hold you up. You can't walk in the presence of God. You can't even crawl in the presence of God. You need someone to stand in God's presence for you. It's a gracious thing. It might be annoying to have someone spend three whole chapters telling us how bad we are, but let him kick the legs out from underneath you. Because when you do, you fall into the net of Jesus Christ. It's the people who try to struggle to find more legs and more crutches and more things to stand on that they never experience the grace of not having to try to stand in the presence of God by themselves. I mean, we do it with all kinds of things. We can, we can do it with, you know, just how good of people we are. We can do it with how we vote. We can do it with how smart we are. We, we, we self-justify. God would never judge someone as smart as me. Let Paul kick those legs out so that you can realize you don't have to have legs to stand before the presence of God. There is one who stands before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. And by the way, it's not me. It's my Savior, Jesus Christ. I have no legs to stand on but I do have a firm foundation. My friends, if you feel like you have just been zapped these last three weeks, we've got one more week to go. Paul wants to absolutely exasperate you. He is beating out the self-justification so that you can realize you do not need to self-justify. If you answer the problem of sin and judgment by saying, but you're still there. What you need is a justifier. Don't self-justify. Be justified in Christ. You can't do that work on your own. Jesus came and he bore the wrath for sin. It was wrath for you and he took it bore it, withstood it because he's the only one that can. He died because you don't have a leg to stand on. And then he rose again and sits at the right hand of God. 
so that now you can freely enter into the presence of God. You have free access. Why? Not because you're moral, not because you're religious, not because you're wicked smart, not because you're politically right, not because you're good, not because you're white, not because you're black, not because you have hair, not because you're bald, but because Jesus lives. You need nothing else. Jesus justifies, and Jesus justifies alone. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that the gospel has been clear. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we continue through Romans, you will continue to sweep the legs out from underneath us so that we can stand in Christ. We lift up to you this time. I pray that your spirit will work as we worship, and I pray this in your son's name. Amen.